0: Good evening. Great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and it's great to welcome you this evening. Really glad that you're here with us. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast interview recently with a guy named Gordon McDonald. Some of you, uh, a few of you will know that name. Gordon McDonald is a pastor in the New England area and Bible teacher and leadership, advised presidents, had a lot of kind of interesting uh, history in his life. He's in his 80s, and, um, and this was an interview about kind of what he's learned as a leader in now, you know, five decades of leadership. And he was talking just about his current kind of life situation. He's in his 80s, and he's, uh, he and his wife have been married over 50 years. And uh, he, he said that they wake up every day, they're in good health right now, but they wake up every day asking themselves this question, is today our last normal day? I thought man that's a really that's a really good question is today our last normal day if you are in your 80s you're surrounded by a lot of people who their last normal day already happened and maybe it's from health or maybe it's from death of a spouse or a loved one but the last normal days in the rear view, and so especially for folks Gordon's age, I mean, he's thinking about that quite a bit, but here's what I realized as I heard that, is you don't have to be in your 80s to really be asking that question. Is today my last normal day? Some of you, you've already had your last normal day, and you're now in some kind of new normal, but for a lot of us, we don't know at any given time, let alone, (laughs) I mean, we could just ask, is today my last day, right? Like, we don't know that. Life's a vapor. God could just take us at any moment, But is today our last normal day. And and it might be that it's your last normal day because something happens to you. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a a loss of a child. Maybe it's a change. It's some major thing in work and economy. And there's all kinds of things that could happen to you that would make it your last normal day. But here's the other thing that I think about is it could be your last normal day because of something you do. Like all of us, (laughs) we, we This is a dark way to start this whole thing, but, but we all have the ability to ruin our lives in a day, right? So it could be that there's things that happen to us. It could be there's things we do. I mean, you could just go off the deep end. There's all sorts of problems and all sorts of inappropriate relationships and all sorts of things you could do that could just ruin your life in a day. And that would be your last normal day. And I have to be thinking that the people of Israel and Moses might have been asking themselves this question, was was yesterday our last normal day? Especially after what we read about last week, what we looked at last week in depth in Exodus chapter 32. See, God had rescued the people of Israel. They had been in Egypt. They had been enslaved. God had brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he'd given them a new relationship to him. They were to be his display case people. He gave them his law. He said, I want you to follow me. I want you to shine my light to the nations. Here's what it looks like to be my people. And in Exodus 32, what we saw last week is they just flat out rebelled. They did exactly what God had told them not to do. We saw last week the kind of mathematics of rebellion, kind of the formula that rebellion often follows. It often follows a disordered love plus a moment of insecurity or fear or need, and we turn to sin. It's a disordered love. A disordered love, what we said last week, is something that maybe it's a bad thing that we love that we shouldn't love, or maybe it's a good thing that we love too much. We turn a good thing into a God thing, and our loves are all out of whack. Our priorities are all out of line, and instead of loving God primarily, we fall in love with other things, and so when that's just the condition of our hearts, then our lives encounter moments where we feel insecure, where we feel needy, where we're not sure what to do, where we feel afraid, where we feel anxious, where we feel tempted. And oftentimes that combination leads us to turn away from God and to turn towards sin. And that's what the people of Israel had done. And what we saw is that God was very, very mad about it. And so the question tonight is, is Israel too far gone for God? Have they gone too far, right? God had had them as his treasured people, Have they kind of like, maybe there's this line where it's like, God's patient, God loves you, God's patient, God loves you, God's patient, God hates you now. Have they crossed that line? Is there a line like that? Have they crossed it? What about you? Are you too far gone for God? Have you done things? Maybe you haven't ruined your life in a day, but you feel like you've ruined your spiritual life through a lot of different days added together. You say, well, I can maybe remember a time when I felt close to God, but I, I don't have those days anymore. I'm too far gone. Maybe you've never had that, but you think, I could never have it. I mean, at best, maybe God would sort of keep me at arm's length, maybe forgive my sin, but I could never have a close relationship with God. I could never have a time where it felt like God really wanted to be with me. I just couldn't do that. I've gone too far. Is that true? The answer tonight is a resounding No. Here's the good news tonight. Reconciliation with God is possible. Reconciliation with God is possible. And we're going to look tonight at four different things that happen related to reconciliation with God. Exodus is concluding this. This is how we're going to finish this series. And so we'll look at these four things in just a moment. But first, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we get into these. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us, your kindness, And thank you that we can't get too far away from your reconciling love. God, we try, we run, we love other things besides you, and yet we are thankful tonight that you're merciful, that you're gracious, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love. Help us to see that. Help us even tonight to experience in a fresh way reconciliation with you. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So reconciliation with God happens. uh, Four things involved with that. The first one is this. Reconciliation with God happens when you treasure God more than his blessings. When you treasure God more than his gifts. That's really what repentance is, is when God becomes your treasure more than the stuff God gives you. God was very upset with the people. It says in Exodus 32, verse 10, God says to Moses, hey, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against these people and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. See, here's what God was thinking. God was thinking, you know what? I am so mad at these people. They have done exactly the thing I told them not to do. Their hearts are hard, they've been grumbling against me the whole way, but I've had it, and I'm gonna wipe them out, and Moses, I'm gonna start over with you. And Listen, I've done this before, I did it with Noah. Wiped everyone out, starting with him. I'm gonna wipe everyone out, I'm gonna start with you, Moses. And we'll see in a minute how Moses intercedes and Moses gets involved and says, hey, God, don't do that. And and God does relent. He doesn't wipe the people out as he says he's going to. But it's not really clear when chapter 32 ends, what's the relationship with God going to be like? And is it, are they going to be forgiven? Is it going to be restored? It's not really clear. And so here's what we read in Exodus 33, verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Ooh, okay, so this feels like good news. He's going, all right, Moses, here's the deal. We've had enough time here at this mountain. It's time to go to the land that I promised to you and your ancestors. You're going. Get up, get ready. Verse 2. More good news. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these uh, ite people, right? All the termites and all the, all the other ites, they're all going to go away. Like you're going you're to conquer them. You're going to have military victory. They're going to fight against you, but you will be successful. That's more good news. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Moses, this is a good land. I mean, this is prosperous, this is abundant. The crops and the animals and the soil, it is amazing. And when you think about the gap between being enslaved in Egypt and being in a land flowing with milk and honey, man, this is amazing. God's saying, here's the deal, guys. I want you to go into the land I've promised. I'm sending an angel before you. You're gonna have military success. You're gonna have a land flowing with milk and honey. But, verse three, But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. I'm not sure I can take it. And so you know what? You guys are going to go? You're going to have everything that I told you you'd have? You're going to have everything you'd want? It's going to be amazing? But I'm not going. Let me ask you this. What if you could have perfect health, tons of money, healthy, happy children, great vacation, admiration from your peers, respect from your enemies, healthy relationships with your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. And you could have an easy death, just die in your sleep someday. What if you could have all that, but no God? Zero God. You get, you get no God. You get all of that, but no zero God. Here's what I know. Some of us would be like, I know I'm in church, so I probably should say I don't want that, but I actually kind of want that. Like that sounds, if you knew how bad my life is right now, if you know how hard things are, if you know how stuck I feel, like of course I would take that deal. What about the Israelites? I mean, their heart seems so fickle. And just a minute ago, they were worshiping a golden calf. How do they respond to this? Verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. The next few verses talk about how they take off their jewelry. They assume a posture of mourning, of grief, of loss. This is a disastrous word. And this is actually a good sign that the people of Israel are really beginning to get what it is to repent and to turn in faith toward God. Because faith and repentance is when you love God more than the gifts of God. When you love God more than his blessings. When God himself is your treasure, not the treasures he gives you. It's a different thing. And I know that there's something in you and there's something in me that just looks at how hard this life is and says, I would take a perfect life even if there was no God. Here's the thing though, that doesn't exist. And even the people who think they have it eventually realize that a life without God is still empty. Read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what it is. The richest, the wisest guy who's ever lived writing a memoir about how all that stuff didn't fill his heart. St. Augustine was the one who said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Now, doesn't God's gifts help us get to know him? I mean, are God's gifts a problem? No, 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 not at all. Of course, God reveals himself to a large degree through his gifts. His gifts are good. James 1 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. But the question is, what's our deepest treasure? And reconciliation with God happens when you begin to repent, when you treasure God more than his gifts. And how do you know what you really treasure? Well, here's how I think you know. And unfortunately, there's only one way really to know this for sure, is the only way to really know what you treasure is to have things you love be taken away. To have your comfort and your health and a friend and a loved one a great situation to have that stripped away and it's painful and it hurts but the people of faith even after a season of frustration and anger and processing eventually get to the point where they say you know what I'm thankful that that happened because in those moments I realized I still had God and he was enough See, if we don't get to that point, if, if we lose things that are important to us and we only get angry at God and we stay angry at God, right? It's okay to be angry at God. The Psalms are filled with, with prayers of, of people complaining to God about stuff. But if we stay there for a long time and we get bitter and we get resentful and we say, oh, I don't believe that stuff anyway. You know what it proves? It proves that we married God for his money. No one wants to married for their money. And God doesn't either. The bottom line is that the mark of true repentance is wanting God more than his gifts. And when you want that, you're on a path to beginning to experience a reconciliation and a closeness with God that's beyond what you can imagine. Reconciliation with God is possible. That's the good news tonight. Here's the second reality about reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God happens through a courageous, selfless, Mediator. God in his providence did not decide to just all of a sudden get reconciled to his people, but he gets reconciled to his people through a courageous and a selfless mediator, someone who goes in between the people and God on behalf of the people. And in this particular section of scripture, that mediator is Moses. What we see actually are four times in this section that Moses mediates, intercedes, goes to God on behalf of the people. This is a remarkable growth in, in Moses we've seen in this book because at the beginning of it, in Exodus 3, Moses is going, well, God, I don't know. You shouldn't send me. I'm not a good public speaker. What do I, I, no one's going to listen to me. By the end of the book, he's like getting in God's face and like, you can't do that, God. He's grown. And he's grown to be a courageous, selfless mediator. In Exodus 32, when God is really upset, you can turn in your Bible and look at these with me. I want to just kind of walk through these different intercessions of Moses. The first one is in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 11. So God has just said, I want to consume these people. I want to get rid of them. I'm going to start over with you. Moses, and in verse 11, it says, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, God, if, if you... If you just destroy your people now, all the Egyptians who right now think you're pretty powerful and pretty strong and pretty impressive are going to go, seriously, that's what he was doing? He did all that stuff to us just to bring his people out into the desert and kill them? What kind of a crazy God is that? He continues. He says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And so, so the two arguments are, God, hey, remember the promises that you made and remember your reputation before the nations. And that's his first line of argumentation. Now, so here's, here's kind of how I think about this whole thing. Um, I'm, Molly and I are now at the glorious place in our lives. If you have enough children, the good part is eventually the older ones get to watch the younger ones for free. <laughs> it is awesome. It's really wonderful. And we're beginning to experience the joy of that. And so I just want you to imagine that we get home, Molly and I get home from a date night, and we show up at the house and... Uh, Abby's been in charge, but we get home, and it is obvious that everything went wrong. There are dishes broken, the, the cushions and the pillows, and things are torn, and there's like drops of blood on the floor, and it's like something clearly went really, really wrong here, right? And so we are furious. How did this happen? You're all, you're all grounded. You know those plans we were going to make? We're not making those anymore. You're not going to that birthday party. You're not going to this thing. Give us that. Give us you. To your room, right? We're just furious. And so I imagine this set of intercessions like various of my kids coming to me and interceding. So the first one would be Abby comes and she says, hey, uh, dad, I realize you're really upset and and we blew it, but listen, your honor's at stake. (laughs) And you told us that we could go to that party, that birthday party, And you really aren't the kind of person that changes your mind on that stuff. And so I think you ought to do that because what are those people going to think of you if you don't let us go to the party, right? That's kind of the first line of reasoning. First kind of mediation. All right, here's the second one. It's at the end of the chapter. It's in Exodus 32, verse 30. Here's the second mediation of Moses. This is courageous. This is selfless. The next day... Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is courageous. Because listen, here's God's idea. God's idea is I'm done with the people, but I like you. I'm going to start over with you. And this is Moses saying, God, I hope you'll forgive all of us, but if you don't, will you kill me and let these people have you back? I mean, think about that. Rather than going, you know what, this is a good idea to start over with just me. I've been thinking that for a while. I mean, these people have been on my case for this whole time. They just complain about the water and the bread and there's no meat and we had it so good. Yes, start over with me. Brilliant. But Moses says, no, 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 no. God, if you would kill me, sacrifice me in their place. Right, So this would be like my second daughter coming after we lose it. We get home and we're all mad. And my second daughter, Caitlin, she comes and she says, Mom, Dad, I know you guys are really mad and, and we all really blew it and, and everything went really wrong. But would you, would you just punish me and let Abby and Caitlin and Mary... Or Ab, Caitlin is the one. No, Abby and Mary and Hank, would you let them go? Right? I, I can't get the name straight because this would never happen. <laughs> this is just... <laughs> But you get like how amazed you'd be if that happened. You'd be like, wow, I didn't, that's really selfless. That's amazing. <laughs> all right. So that's the second one. The third and the fourth one are kind of similar. It's sort of the same argumentation that happens. The, the third one happens in chapter 33, verse 12, all right? This is where God has said, okay, I'm going to send you into the land, but I'm not going with all of you. And so Moses intercedes again. In verse 12, he says, Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and, you've also, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. See, see, here's what Moses is doing. Moses is saying, all right, God, you've told me that I have your favor, but here's the thing. You've made promises to your people. Will you let the favor that you have for me count for them? Would you apply your favor toward me to all of them also? God's not so sure about this. Verse 14, it says, my presence will go with you. And in the Hebrew, that's singular. I'll go with you, Moses. I don't, I'm not, I don't know about everybody else. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And so Moses keeps going. Again, the selflessness of this. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God, you are the one that makes us distinct. Would you give my favor to them too? Right, so this would be like Mary. And Mary would come. She's our five-year-old. We call her Madam President. And so she would walk into the room, and she would have a kind of rare kind of contrition, and she would say, "Uh, Dad, I know that I'm your favorite. Um, And Mary's actually not my favorite. She's not. My other kids say that she is, but she's not. But she thinks she is. So, So she would say, Dad, I know that I'm your favorite. Would you please... Be gracious to everyone else like you'd be gracious to me. <laughs> and that's the argument he makes in the fourth one as well. That's in 34 verse nine. He says, if I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it's a stiff necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. See, this Relationship with God is restored because of a mediator, someone who's willing to go between the guilty people and the holy God, someone who's willing to humble himself and in Moses' case, risk death and ask that the favor he's won with the Lord would be spread to other people. But here's the good news for us tonight. Our hope of reconciliation with God is not based on Moses. It's based on the one that Moses points to, and his name's Jesus. And Jesus is the one who had no sin. So he could be a selfless, sinless substitute. And Jesus is the one who had perfect favor with God, having never rebelled, having only obeyed, and his perfect record gets transferred to us. So that God would allow us to shine his light into the nations and to show God's power to the world. We can be reconciled with God. This is good news tonight. And it's possible because of a strong, courageous, selfless mediator. But it's also possible, here's the third thing, because of God's goodness. See, we need to repent, we need to love God, not just his gifts, and we definitely have to turn in faith toward the mediator, but, but this is ultimately possible because the heart of God himself is good and gracious. Moses gets this answer in verse 17. He said, aren't you going to go with us? And in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Okay, Moses, you got it. I'm going to bless these people. I'm going to go with you. I'm not just going with you. I'm going with all y'all. And so Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. And there's this then remarkable scene where God says, well, you can't really see me face to face because no one can see me and live. So I'm gonna tuck you in kind of behind this rock and uh, my glory's gonna pass by and I'm going of cover you with my hand and it's this kind of wild thing. And I've always only heard this taught as the idea that Moses just really wanted to know the Lord. So he said, show me your glory. But that doesn't make sense in this context. What's Moses doing here? Here's what Moses is doing. Moses is saying, God, I want a down payment that you're really gonna follow through on this. You've told me that you'll do this, but I wanna see it. And so here's the amazing thing. Look at the question, that, or the request Moses makes in verse 18, and then look at God's response. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Whoa, 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 did you get that? Moses asked to see God's glory, and God said, I'll show you my goodness. Because when we think of glory, we think of might and power and strength. But here's the thing, might and power and strength that isn't good is terrifying. What makes God glorious is his goodness. And so it's in the heart of God, it's because of the goodness of God that ultimately these requests are granted. And I, I knew when I was growing up that, that there were certain parents I went to for certain requests. You guys had this when you grew up. Some of you have this now. I make sure I ask dad for this, make sure I ask mom for that. Because I know that depending on who I ask it's going to depend the kind of answer I get, right? Because ultimately the request isn't even about the request and it's not even about you. It's about the character of the person you're asking. Well, get this. God is good. And we can be reconciled because he's good. Did you see how... God had said in verse 19, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Well, this is then what he does in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34. He says, Here's who I am. Here's what my goodness looks like. Look at Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is the central confession of who God is. It's repeated seven times in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Over and over. This is actually, uh, Jonah quotes this back to God when Jonah doesn't do what God says. He doesn't go to Nineveh. And he says, God, I didn't go to Nineveh because I know that you're a God who's merciful and gracious and you are probably gonna forgive those losers, right? So this becomes like a central idea of here's who God is. Well, who is God? God is good. Look at how God's described. He's described as merciful. That means God doesn't give you what you deserve. You deserve punishment. You deserve wrath. You deserve the worst, and you don't get it. But he's not just merciful. He's also gracious, a God merciful and gracious. Gracious isn't just that you don't get what you do deserve, but you do get what you don't deserve. You get goodness. You get blessing. You get favor. You get him. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. This means he's patient. He's thoughtful. He's measured. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it says. This means that there's more than enough. There's not just this kind of for a limited time only, right? Like while supplies last of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. But it abounds. There's enough. There's a lot. If you've had a lifetime of sin, he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He can forgive you. And he keeps his steadfast love for thousands, it says. Now, the footnote there that's pretty interesting, it says, keeping steadfast love, you could translate this, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. And that's gonna become important in a minute. But this is saying that God is able to stay faithful for a long time, to love for a lot of people, to spread his love to so many generations. How's he do this? Well, he's a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. I was just sort of chewing on that verse and going like forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He could have just said forgiving sin, right? But instead he said forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You go, well, what what are the differences? Here's, Here's the thing. I think in this verse, it doesn't matter. The point is whatever you've done that's not good, God can forgive it. It doesn't matter if it was a sin or an iniquity or transgression, I'm not sure what the difference is, but whatever it is, God will forgive you if you turn to him. And yet, here's this interesting tension, but while by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third in the fourth generation. So God is just and God is fair. And if your father walks in a certain kind of sin, there's a good chance that you're gonna be impacted by that sin and that sin is gonna be passed down, not in some sort of mystical spiritual way, but just the reality of growing up in a sinful, dysfunctional world. And God's not necessarily gonna stop that. And he won't clear the guilty, which means that someone will pay for your sin. And either it'll be Jesus on the cross, in your place, the perfect mediator substituting for you, or it will be you. When you stand before God, having ignored him, having built your life on everything else but him, saying, I can go it without God, and God will say, fine. Then you'll have eternity without me it won't be good because I'm good. Now, I mentioned the generations thing, right? We're kind of thrown off by the end of verse seven where it says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the third and fourth generation. But contrast that with what he just said earlier. He said showing steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations, you know, visiting iniquity and sin on three or four. Here's the point of this. The point of this is that God is weighted toward wanting to forgive, God is weighted toward wanting to show love. God is just and God is fair, but the heart of God is big and generous and welcoming. And so we have hope tonight of reconciliation with God because God delights in saving sinners. There's a place in the book of, uh, I think it's Luke, Luke 15, where it says there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's joy in the presence of the angels, it says, over one sinner who repents. And when you read that, you always think it's the joy of the angels, but that's not what it says. It says there's joy in the presence of the angels. Well, who's in the presence of the angels? God. So whose joy is it over a sinner who repents? It's God's. This is our big hearted good God. Here's the last thing that we see as we look at the rest of the book of Exodus, is that reconciliation with God happens as a picture of making things new. As a picture of making things new. So some of you are looking at this and going like, okay, we're in in chapter 34, and there's like 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40. This is the last week, so you're just skipping this whole part. And uh, the answer to that is Yes. That's exactly what I'm doing. And here's why is in Exodus 25 to 31, God gave all these instructions about how to build the tabernacle, the place where heaven would touch earth and God would dwell with his people. And then you had this whole interlude in chapters 32 to 34, where they sin and then they're restored and forgiven. But then 35 to 40 is they actually build it. And, And the language of 35 to 40 is almost the exact same as 25 to 31. The The key idea there is that they're actually obeying God. They're actually doing what God said. But I didn't feel like we needed to go back and re-explain all the things that we explained just a couple of weeks ago. But here's what I do want to make sure we hit, is that reconciliation with God happens as a picture of God making things new. This has been a big theme in the book of Exodus. As we kind of wrap up this book, here's kind of a summary thought on this whole book that we've been studying for these last 15 weeks. When God saves people... He makes them new as a picture of what God promises to do in making all things new. This theme of God's recreation has just kept coming through this book. I've been kind of blown away by it. When we were in the plagues where God was was unraveling uh, the people of Egypt, he was doing it with this series of plagues. And each of these plagues was sort of showing, here's what happens when God reverses creation. When instead of light, there's darkness. When instead of humanity having dominion over the animals, instead the frogs are teaming up and spewing out everywhere and animals seem to be in control and creation seems to be reversed. And then the, the restoring of the norms of creation was how God then showed grace and mercy to the Egyptians. We saw it with the people of Israel when they crossed the Red Sea. When they crossed the Red Sea, there was this echo to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it says that God separated the light from the light, and he separated the waters, and out of the waters emerged dry land. And then we got to the crossing of the Red Sea, and God separated the light from the light, and he separated the waters, and out of that came dry land, and they crossed. And It's a picture of how when God saves, he's making things new. The tabernacle was this little hot spot of the presence of God, this mini Garden of Eden with all that imagery to show that when heaven touches earth, God is making things new. Well, the book finishes along these same lines. There's an interesting place in Genesis one. Where it says that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and God blessed them. And in Genesis 2, 2, it says that God finished the work that he had done. Well, listen to what it says in Exodus 39. And Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according all that the Lord had commanded Salvation is about God making us new. And this is good news, especially because we don't know if today's our last normal day. And if you're in a spot where you're looking in the rear view at your last normal day and you've had to get to a new normal and you're thinking, I don't know if it's gonna get better. I don't know if it's ever gonna stop hurting. I don't know if I'm ever gonna be healed. I don't know if the hole is ever gonna be filled. Here's the promise of the book of Exodus is that if your hope is in the mediator, the Passover lamb, the rock who is pierced to pour out water, the sinless, spotless sacrifice, the tabernacle, Jesus, if you're in him, he's making you new. And you do have a hope that goes beyond this moment and beyond this pain and beyond this new normal and a new normal is coming. And it's a time when he'll wipe away every tear and he'll dwell with his people. We'll be his people. He'll be our God. That's our great hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift that uh, this book has been to me, to our church family here. God, thank you for the way you've shaped us and taught us uh, through the book of Exodus. Thank you for the way that it shows us that you're in the business of making us new. So God, we pray tonight that you would do that, that we would experience your salvation in a fresh way, that we would see Christ as enough and that we would find our joy in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.